Miss my cue. <laughs> All right. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord, at this time that we celebrate the birth of our Savior. And Lord, we should celebrate that every single day because you're a risen and living Savior who's triumphed over sin and death. Lord, we pray as we go to your word right now that you'd be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. Great to have you here. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting a new book tonight. Finished Ruth last week, which was a great book. So many pictures of Christ all over that book, but same is true for every book in the Old Testament. So happy birthday, Joel. It's also my mom's birthday as well. She's here, so happy birthday to both of you guys. God bless you. Amen. If she didn't have a birthday, we wouldn't have Calvary Santa Cruz because I wouldn't be here. So, so there it is. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to take a few moments and just give you a, a, some background and overview on the entire book, and then we'll look at all of chapter 1 tonight, Lord willing. But the book of, of Samuel, the first and second Samuel, originally were all one book until they translated from Hebrew into Greek, and when they did, they broke it into two books, really with the emphasis on 1 Samuel being the, the first king, King Saul. It takes some time to get to him, but that's the main emphasis. And then, and then we see David, of course, in there. And then, this, and then 2 Kings is really the time when David was reigning. Now, these books link the judges to the kings. Remember the judges, we, went, we spent you know, many months looking at the judges. The judges was a time when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And as we start 1 Samuel... And we start to look at Hannah and Samuel's birth. That's exactly the time of, of what's going on in the world at that time. The book of Judges, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. It's a godless time. A time when they are not walking with the Lord. What would happen? There were seven cycles over a 400 year period of time where they would be in total rebellion against God. He would bring judgment upon them. And then when the judgment came, they would cry out to God for deliverance. He'd raise up a judge or a deliverer to bring them back to the Lord. They would follow God for a short period of time. And as soon as that judge died, they'd go right back into sin. And so you saw these cycles of sin in Judges. And then we got to Ruth that happened... Again, part at the same time, some of that going on at the same time. And you see this picture of the kinsman redeemer. And you've got to love the story how God is so in control. He's so sovereign. And we're going to continue to look at that tonight. That while things seem to be happening by a chance from the world's perspective, God is orchestrating everything. Even when men are in rebellion, God knows and He's faithful. And even the rebellion of, a, of Elimelech to take his family and to go down into the land of Moab... He disobeyed God when he went down there, but when he went down there, it was still orchestrating God's plan as Ruth married into their family, and then Ruth returned back after Elimelech and both of his sons died. Naomi came back, brought Ruth with her, and by God's divine appointment, she ends up meeting Boaz. They end up getting married, and we know that Boaz didn't take any shortcuts. He waited upon the Lord. He allowed the other kinsman redeemer that was nearer to her an opportunity to marry her first. And what's incredible is Boaz's mom was Rahab, Rahab the harlot. Incredible. And God used him. And then he marries a Moabitess woman. And between the two of them, their great-grandson is a man by the name of David, the king that we will see in Samuel. So everything that God is doing is an orchestration for what's going ahead. And we need to understand that for our own lives as well. That we're going through difficulties, and we'll talk about that tonight. That God indeed is in control and is using it all for His glory if we will let Him. Now, this book is one of my favorite books in the Bible, but that's kind of like saying which one's your favorite kid. You love them all, right? And I love every book in the Bible, but when I was a youth pastor, I taught through 1 Samuel often because there's some great pictures, especially of young people. You're going to see some people that are very young being used very mightily by God. First and Second Samuel are books that have a great amount of both uh, history and doctrine that is brought to life. They're also books that are filled with great character studies. Now the author, we don't know who he is for sure. We know the Holy Spirit's the author ultimately. Who wrote it down? We believe Samuel probably wrote part of it, but we know part of it Samuel couldn't have written because he dies. And so we know he couldn't have written it after, wrote it after he died, right? So some believe Nathan and Gad came in and filled in the gaps. The main characters in 1 Samuel, first we're going to see is Samuel, the last judge and the first great prophet. 
Samuel's a picture of Christ or a type of Christ, and that he's a judge and a prophet and a priest. And again, we see that being a picture of our Savior. He's going to anoint the first king of Israel. He speaks both with prophetic truth and great boldness. And he speaks to people who are doing what was right in their own eyes, trying to draw them back to the true and living God. Another main character we'll see is King Saul. Saul was man's king and David was God's king. Saul was the king that man wanted. Why? Because he was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was yoked. He was the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the day, right? It's amazing how we have Arnold Schwarzenegger for a governor, so kind of like the people crying out for their king, right? Well, Saul was the king that the world cried out for when God was supposed to be their king, and God allowed them to have Saul be king. And we'll be looking in depth at his life throughout 1 Samuel. He was outwardly impressive, but inwardly we're going to see that he was not a man of godly character, at least not for very long. Then we'll look at the life of David. you got to love David. David was... Uh, a shepherd boy, not outwardly impressive, but God saw his heart. You know what's interesting? Was David a sinner? What's the answer? Big time. Amen? Aren't you glad that God's word does not hide the frailties of its heroes? Because the fact that it does that lets me know that God can use me too. Amen? You see a guy like David, and then you see Saul. Now, Saul totally blows it as we're going to see, but David, you could almost debate, blew it just as bad. I mean, he committed murder, he committed adultery, right? I mean, he killed the man who, after he slept with Bathsheba to cover up his sin. But it's interesting that God says of Saul that he regretted making him king, but he says of David that he's a man after God's own heart. What's the difference? Because they're both sinful men. They both have a laundry list of things they did that were wicked and evil. But what's the difference? You know what the difference is? David repented and Saul didn't. What makes someone a man after God's own heart, a woman after God's own heart, is someone who when confronted with their sin, or when coming to the realization of their sin, is broken before God and repents. You've heard me say many times, I believe one of the greatest signs of spiritual maturity is a distance in time between when you sin and when you repent. The closer you get to the Lord, it should go from months to days to hours to seconds to moments, Amen. To where you're so broken by your sin, you're getting right with God. We're going to take a look at this man, David, who's anointed king as a young man. Some great pictures of how he was prepared to be king. You know, before he slayed Goliath, he was slaying lions and tigers when nobody else was around. Before he became the leader of the army, he led armies into battle before he led God's people. He feared no men and would not touch God's anointed. And as we know, David did have his struggles, but God used him mightily. And we, again, we notice the difference between them. Now Saul is going to come to a, an untimely death at the very beginning of the next book. Actually, a very timely death in that he refused to obey God. And because he refused to obey God, God took the kingdom from him. And instead of repenting and getting right with God, he runs to a witch to see if he can get the counsel he really wants. And this is so much like the world today. If we don't get what we want from God, we can either repent and get right with God, or we can go try to find someone else to give us the answer that we want. And you know what? When you do that, it never works out too well. David, too, is a type of Christ. As we're going through looking at David and Saul, David was born in Bethlehem. He was a shepherd. He ruled over as king of Israel, and the Messiah would one day be called the son of David. Now, I love each of those pictures. We're going to start off tonight looking at one of the, another character by the name of Hannah. We'll look at her tonight. We'll look at Jonathan, a friend of David. What a great picture of friendship between Jonathan and David. Jonathan was a man that could have been lobbying for position because from the world's perspective, he was the son of Saul, could have, could have and should have been from the world's perspective the next king, but he recognized God's hand on David. Instead of fighting him for it, he abdicated to him. Not only that, he even tried to lift him up into that position God had for him. We'll take a look at another man by the name of Goliath, a Philistine, a mighty warrior who brought fear into the hearts of all of Israel, but was no match for God and a shepherd boy with a rock. Amen? And we're going to see that throughout this book, it's it's a book that has transitions. Not only does it link the judges to the kings, but we'll see a transition from Eli being the spiritual leader, if you will, to it being turned over to Samuel, a prophet. Then it'll go from Samuel to Saul, and then from Saul to David. The two key verses I wrote down, 
from this entire book. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be the commander over the people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And then 1 Samuel 15, 22 says this, Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. God is not looking for us to put on a big show for Him. You know, the highest form of worship is obedience. If we will simply obey Him, we're letting Him know that we really love Him. Now we come to chapter 1. And let's just catch us up and let us know what's happening at that moment, where we're at in time. Israel is in rebellion. Everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. The Word of God is rare. It says in chapter 3, the Word of God was rare. And the revelation of God was not widespread. There was corruption within the priesthood. We'll get a little taste of that tonight. We'll see that the current or most recent judge or deliverer was a man by the name of Samson. So this is either right at the time of Samson or right after the time of Samson. And we know, if you were here from Judges 17 to 19, here's a guy that there's no written proof anywhere that he ever had a positive impact on anybody. He was a judge called by God. He was a mighty man of great strength. And amazingly enough, he's in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faith, which just blows my mind. It shows, again, the grace of God. Amen? Sometimes people read that list and they think, oh, this must be a really great man. When I go to India, you'll be amazed how many people are named Samson. And I keep telling them, you might want to read Judges 17 to 19 and see if you want to keep that name, right? Because this was a guy that was a saved soul in a wasted life. This is a guy that had a mighty calling of God upon his life. He was a he-man with a she-weakness, right? He was so focused on women and so focused, he was so outside of God's will. He had the Nazarite vow, he broke it repeatedly. Well, this is the guy who's supposed to be the judge at the time that we get to 1 Samuel 1, or he has just died. One or the other, it's right about that time. And this is where we come into, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. But chapter 1 was all a part of God's plan to raise up This man, Samuel. And we're going to see how God brings him into this world. At the same time, not only is Israel in rebellion, but they have an enemy, the Philistines, that is superior in size, superior in weaponry, superior in technology. They've got iron weapons, which the children of Israel did not have at the time. They were rebellious and godless Israel facing a huge enemy with little or no leadership, and the word of God had disappeared. Man, that's a rough time. It's a really rough time. And it is in the midst of this time of godlessness and, and, and uh, no word of God and, and corruption within the priesthood that the text brings us to this woman who's going through her own personal struggles on top of all of it. So on top of living in a time that's godless and there's corruption abounding and in the midst of the time when the word of God is not being proclaimed really by anyone... There's this woman who's having her own private struggles. And we're going to see how in the midst of all of that, God is still in control. We need to remember it's often in times of great difficulty and trials that we can start to question God. Well, if He really loves me, why is He letting me go through this? Anybody ever felt that way before? Remember, lying is a sin. Right? God, how come? Why does, why, Lord, why are you doing this? You know, and sometimes we're not going to understand until we get to heaven. Amen? Amen? But often we do look back and we can see the hand of God. And this is where our main character in the study tonight, Hannah, no doubt is wondering, God, why am I going through this? Not only am I living in a godless time with godless people, but I love the Lord and my circumstances are brutal. We're going to see in tonight's text, and I pray we will learn to trust in our own times and trials of difficulty, that God knows, He cares, and He is indeed in control. It's it's often in the midst of the greatest times of difficulty and moments of desperation that we get to see God work. You know, sometimes it takes difficulty to make us desperate. Amen? To get us back on our knees. To cry out to Almighty God. And while we may not know the reasons... We need to trust to know that God is faithful. So that's what we're going to see, that through difficulty in Hannah's life, God's preparing her for something great. And through difficulties in our lives, 
God is preparing us for something great. He's transforming us into His image. He's allowing us to impact others and to bring glory to His name. So if you're a note taker, I title the message, God's Divine Purpose for Difficulty. God's Divine Purpose for Difficulty. We need to learn to trust in the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God. Trust that He does indeed know and care that God has us in the fire for a reason. Amen? He puts us in there for a reason. And He continues to complete the work that He began in us. Again, in the midst of those difficult trials, it's a small price to pay if in the end we're more like Him. Amen? If the difficulties and the trials that we go through are a small price to pay if in the end He is glorified through them. Lord, whatever it takes to make my life count for eternity, it's worth it. And remember His promise that He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We love to quote that verse, but sometimes that work includes trials. Amen? He completes that work through difficulty and trials sometimes. And remember too that all things do work together for good for those who trust in God, for those who are called according to His purpose. So again, for note takers, God's divine purpose for difficulty. Point number one, and I applied these to Hannah, but we need to apply them to our own lives. We're going to see Hannah's overwhelming difficulty. We're going to first find out the problem, the life that she's living, the trial that she's going through, and how difficult it must have been for her. Then we're going to see how it brings about a heart of desperation, from overwhelming difficulty to a heart of desperation. And then we're going to see that when we come to God with a heart of desperation, that God gives a divine response. God gives a divine response when we come to Him broken and desperate. And then finally, we're going to see Hannah being faithful to the vow she made to God. You know, she comes desperate and cries out to God and makes a commitment to the Lord. And then God responds to her in a divine way. And then it's her turn to respond back to Him. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at God's divine purpose for difficulty, Hannah's overwhelming difficulty. Let's take a look at verse 1. Now there was a certain man, a Ramatham Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and a Paphromite. Now, there was a certain man. Now remember, in the middle of a time of godlessness, in the middle of a time when the word of God was not being delivered, in a time when there's corruption in the priesthood, when either the judge is Samson who's not doing his job or there's no judge at all, everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes, and God wants to bring about restoration of his people by raising up not a message, but raising up a man. You know, that's what God always does. Almost always. You know, God could open up the sky. Amen? Couldn't he go, you guys are blowing it, right? He could do that, and I think we'd probably, he'd probably get our attention, amen? You guys are blowing it, get right. Yes, Lord, right? Amen. We do that. But here's the point. God tends not to use a message. He tends not to use a method. He doesn't use the angels, and he doesn't often open up the sky. What he does instead is he uses men and women who are available to be used by him. And God's looking for men and women who will say, yes, Lord, here I am, use me. That's a prayer he'll answer every single time. And so there's a certain man at a certain time, and we're going to find that he's a godly man, but he too has got some mistakes that he's made that have brought about some hardship on his own wife. And so there's this certain man living at a certain time in Israel, this time of rebellion and corruption, and God is going to accomplish his work through this man who seems to be for a moment just along for the ride. Now he lives in Ramatham Zophim. Now for the rest of the book, it'll just be called Ramah. And if you're, you know, if you're into the area where it is in Israel, it's, it's a city about five and a half miles north of Jerusalem. It's called Zophim because they're descendants of Zuf. Now the most important part about all of this, if you go to First Chronicles, it tells us that this is a Levitical tribe. So this man is a Levite. Levites were what kind of tribe? The what tribe? The priestly tribe. They either served as priests or they served alongside the priest in the tabernacle. And they also were spread out all over where the tribes settled in the land of promise. And the Levites were spread out so they might minister the people in all the different cities and regions. And so this man was assigned to an area where the Epaphrodites were, but he was not, you know, was not of the tribe of Ephraim. 
He just lived there, but he was a Levite. That's an important point, because if he's a Levite, that would mean his son would be a Levite. And so his son Samuel will indeed be of a priestly line. Now, it also says there, the very last thing, an Epaphramite. Now, that also is a, is a, a synonym for Bethlehem. So he's from Bethlehem, and he's of a priestly tribe. Again, a picture that Samuel indeed is a picture or a type of our Savior. Now this man's name, it says his name is Elkanah. Elkanah means God has possessed or God has created. And so here he is, a a godly man living in a godless time. But we're going to see that he was also a man of some compromise. Living in the area of Bethlehem, a a background or he's a a Levite, should be serving in that type of ministry. Now look at verse 2, this is where we know that he's blowing it. And it said, and he had two wives. Now, in the Old Testament, don't we see a lot of polygamy? What's the answer? Big time. But you know what? It never works out. You know, sometimes people go, there's polygamy all over the Old Testament, man. Well, yeah, there's murder all over the Old Testament too, right? I mean, the point is, because you see something in the Old Testament does not mean that God condones it. Amen? God made Adam and Eve, and and He said, let the two become one flesh. Amen? And Jesus referred to that as being the picture, and we see it throughout Scripture. You know, I know it sounds kind of crass, but some will say, you know, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Well, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Jane, too, amen? He didn't have two wives. He had one wife, and the two became one flesh. But you know what it is? It's the weakness of man and the leanness that comes into his soul that he goes out and he's led by his flesh and he takes on extra wives. And as we're going to see tonight, that's always a disaster. Can you, I can't even imagine, I'm just being honest with you, I can't imagine living in a house with two wives. I'm not picking on, I'm just saying somebody's always going to be mad at you. Because you're going to, well, you spend too much time with her. Well, you're not spending time with me. And you, don't, you, know, and you gave her more money than me. Can you imagine? Oh. And here's the point. This is what's happening. And we're going to find out that's exactly what happens. And the truth is, you can never love two women the same because God created you to love only one. And so what's going to happen is one's going to be loved more. One's going to be loved less. And that's going to be, oh, it's just going to be a tragedy. And that's exactly what happens in tonight's text. He has more than one wife, not condoned by God in any way, shape, or form. Some other examples. Abraham took on a, uh, you know, maid. So take Hagar. How'd that work out? How's that working out right about now? You know, all the all the descendants of Ishmael are still fighting with all the descendants of Isaac. You know, it's interesting. Every time we go to Israel, they take us to this. They call it the Abraham land or something, and you go into this tent and. This guy pretends to be Abraham, and they feed you dinner, and you ride camels. It's pretty cool. And it's actually the land where Abraham dwelt. And then he comes out and asks you if you have any questions. And I always ask him the same thing. Hey, bro, got a question. Hagar, what were you thinking? You know? And he always goes, oy vey, I don't know. You know what I mean? The point is, not a good idea. Polygamy never works out. The same happens with Jacob and David. How about Solomon. Dude had 900 wives, 1,000, right? He must have like tried to marry, I'm already married to you. He didn't even know, right? He couldn't have even known all their names. Insane. But this is the heart of man. It's perverse and wicked above all things, amen? God's called us to have a heart for one woman. Period. And that's God's highest. Multiple wives, it's noted by God in the Bible to serve not as permission, but as a warning. Notice, don't do this. Because every time they do, it doesn't work out so well. Now let's take a look at these two women. The name of one was Hannah. Hannah means grace or gracious. And she is that. And the name of the other was Penina. Now Penina means pearl or precious stone. Now as is often with polygamy, one wife is fertile and has many children, and the other one has none. Let's take a look. And it says, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, evidently, and I don't know this for sure, this is just your pastor's opinion, okay? I believe 
that he probably married Hannah first. And this is the woman, as we're going to see later, that was his favorite that he loved the most. Some time went by, she was unable to have children, and he pulled to Abraham. Instead of waiting upon God, he went out and got another wife so he could have a family. So now Penina is having all kinds of kids. It says she has sons and daughters. So that means at least four right, sons and daughters, multiple sons, multiple daughters. I got no idea how many kids she's got, but she's got a lot. Hannah's got none. Now in those days, when you were barren, that was considered a curse from God. By the people. Oh man, if you can't have kids, you must be cursed by God. He opens and closes the womb. Now, here's poor Hannah, not only unable to have children and desiring them, but having to go into the house every day and see the other wife with all the kids. Now, how do you think that's working out? Can you imagine every time Penina got pregnant again and was walking around the house all pregnant and the kids were running around and her husband's over there picking up his kids by the other wife, hugging on them, loving on them, and she's sitting over there thinking... Why am, what, I'm, I'm of no value. And it gets even worse as we're going to see. Elkanah, like Abraham, again, instead of waiting upon the Lord, tried to fix the problem himself. And all it ends up doing is bringing division within his own home. Look, it says in verse 3. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord were there. We'll get a little into Hophni and Phinehas in the next few weeks. These guys were train wrecks. Talk about corruption within the body of Christ. Well, in those days it wasn't the body of Christ yet. But corruption within God's people, the priesthood. These guys were drinking and partying and you know, bringing women in and just a total disaster. And you know, So there's nothing new under the sun, is there? It's amazing, you know, people that are in ministry today are still falling left and right, and the enemy wants to tempt them more than anybody else, because if he can bring them down, he can bring droves with them. And Hophni and Phinehas and Eli, you know what, he's not much of a dad. He won't step up to his kids. And so they're there just saying they're going to make sacrifice. The priests are there. They go up to Shiloh, which is the place where sacrifice had to be made. Shiloh, about 20 miles north of Israel. It was the religious center for all the tribes of Israel. It was where the tabernacle was. We spent a lot of time looking at that. We were in Exodus and, and in Numbers as well. And at Shiloh, the ark was there. Now, I love the ark because the ark is such a great picture of our God. You know, it's the law inside of the, that box, the ark of the covenant. Not Noah's ark, but the ark of the covenant. Inside that box were three things. Who remembers? The rod of Aaron, the Ten Commandments, and... Manna. Manna, who's the bread of life? Jesus is, right? Who's, the, who's our great high shepherd, right? The, Jesus is. Who's our great high priest, the rod of Aaron? Jesus is. And who is the one that fulfilled the law? Jesus did. And what's great about it is in, oh, on top of that box is the mercy seat. Because guys, without the mercy of God to cover the law, we'd all be dead. He said, if you ever remove that cover and look in, you drop dead. Why? Because the mercy must cover it. But what I really love too is that they would take the blood of a lamb and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and you had the cherubim or the angels on each side. And certainly here's a picture of the resurrection because when you went into the tomb after Jesus rose from the dead, there, were an, there was an angel at the head and at the foot and there in the middle was the blood-stained cloth that our Savior had come out of after He rose from the dead. I love the ark. It all points to Jesus, just like everything else in the Old Testament does. And he said, when you sacrifice, you must come to Shiloh. You must come to where the ark is. You must come to where the tabernacle is. Why? Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him. Amen? You can't just sacrifice where you want, sacrifice what you want, and sacrifice to whom you want. It only counts, it only works, it's only sufficient if we do it to the true and living God in the way that He has commanded us, because every one of the sacrifices pointed to Jesus. The word Shiloh, it's interesting, it's also a reference to the Messiah. It says in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between, until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh there is a reference to the Messiah. Now it also says that they went up to the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. The Lord of hosts, the God of all heaven and earth, the creator of all things. 
And again, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, the priest of the Lord, were there. It's interesting that Hophni's name means pugilist or fighter, and Phinehas's name means mouth of a serpent. Now, why would you name a priest mouth of the serpent? I got no idea. But that's the guy's name. And it's as if, again, God gave him a name that would fit him later. So the, ho- the tabernacle is housing the glory of God and the wickedness of men all at the same time. You got Hophni and Phinehas there, and you got the glory of God dwelling there. And that was the place that, was, that God told them they had to go to make sacrifice. And then it says in verse 4 and 5, And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Again, multiple sons, multiple daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. Now, he loves Hannah. I believe, again, a picture that he loves her more. And I believe... She couldn't have children, so he brought in another wife so he could have a family. He goes up to make sacrifice. The peace offering, as well as some other offerings, you would give part of the offering that would be burnt and sacrificed unto the Lord, and a portion of it would be taken by the people that made the offering, and they would eat it. And it was a picture of us dining or feasting with God. And so when it was time for him to take the portion and have the feast for his family, he would give a portion to to Penina, his wife, and to each of the children. But then to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her. And and the way it's written there, he loved her a great deal. So he loved her. He loved her best. It says, although the Lord had closed up her womb, the barrenness in her life was attributed to the will of God. The Bible says he opens and closes the womb. That means children that are a blessing from God. Amen? Now the sad thing is that today... Much of the world sees children as a nuisance or a bother. I don't, I'm just, you know, it's not a convenient time for us to have a kid right now. You know, financially, and you know, I've got some career goals I've got to achieve, so I think I'll just go down to the clinic and kill my baby. Now, that's not what they say. They say have an abortion, but it's exactly what they do, isn't it? And you know what? Children are abused and children are not... You know what? By the way, if you know somebody that doesn't want their child, my wife and I will take them right now. And I know there's other people in church that's standing in line. And we support the PRC, and they do a great work. And be praying for them and the work that they do. Amen? And you know what? We need to make sure that those children are protected. But he said, he said, be fruitful and multiply. So having children is a blessing and a gift from God. It's the Lord who blesses us with that. Now, I believe that when you have kids, you have a greater understanding of God's love for you. How many parents do we have in the room? How many of you better understood God's love for you when you had kids? Is that true or not? You look at that baby, and that baby has no idea who you are. Moments old, and you would die for them. Without question. Right now. Right now. I'll die for you. Right now. And you know what? Their eyes are closed. They have no idea who you are. And you know the incredible part? Is when their eyes start to open up, and they start to recognize you. And you get all excited. He looked at me. Look, he smiles when I come in the room, right? You get all excited, right? And eventually, when they say... Dada, it's, you know, you want the house, the car, what do you want? I'll give you everything, you know what I mean? You just, you're, it's game over. You know what though, what a picture of our God, because our eyes were closed to Him, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And what He loves is when we start to recognize His voice, and, and then one day say to Him, I love you, Daddy. That's His treasured possession, that's what He desires. Children are a gift from God, they're a blessing from God. And so, here's this woman who she's barren, But not only is she barren, but in the midst of all of that, she's got to live every day with her rival, as it says in the next verse. Look what it says in verse 6. It says, And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. Imagine poor Hannah. Not only does she have to see the other kids all the time and see her husband holding the other kids all the time and no doubt probably holds them herself at times and is heartbroken because she can't have children of her own, but then Penina is given her grief. She's probably saying things like, you know, you're not a real wife because if you were a real wife, you'd have children. How do you think Hannah felt? Heartbreaking. That's why it's only one woman for one man. Because Hannah was a godly woman, sharing her husband with another man, 
unable to have children, which was considered a curse in those days, had to repeatedly watch Penina at giving birth, having the children running around the house, and her rival taunting her. You're not a real wife. Look at you. I've given him five, six, ten, whatever children she's given. You haven't done anything. Constant. What grief. What a heartbreak on this poor woman. Now, it says in verse 7, So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. She's going up to worship, and as they would go up to worship, no doubt Penina knew that every year he gave Hannah a double portion. And she just wanted to remind her that when you're getting your double portion, he's kind of showing you that he loves you maybe more, or he's showing you favoritism. Let me just remind you that you don't have any kids. Let me just remind you that you haven't given him any children. You're not a real wife, and I'm the one that, that really has been a blessing to him, not you. Poor Hannah. Have you ever noticed, though, it's interesting, they're going up to worship, and as they go up to worship, that there's this bickering going on. It's really kind of one way as she's picking at Hannah. Have you ever noticed how when it's time to go to church, or you're getting ready to go to church, or on your way to church, how stuff just like breaks loose? Kids are wrestling in the back seat. Stuff's out of control. I was a youth pastor for almost 15 years, and I had youth group every Tuesday night in Southern California, and my wife and I used to joke because the house would be totally calm every night of the week, and then I'd come home on Tuesday, and someone's got a fever, and someone broke something, and this is happening, and that's happening. Well, it must be Tuesday. must be time for me to go teach the Bible, right? Because look at what's happening in the house. And the same is true. Poor Hannah's going up, which should be a time to worship the Lord, and instead of a time of worship, it was a time of ridicule. And here's this woman who's going through this great and incredible difficulty. All this bickering and all this strife going on around her. And she wept and she did not eat. Hannah in her misery was driven to a time of prayer and fasting. You know, times like this we can do one of two things. We can run to God or we can run from Him. The midst of difficulty, the midst of ridicule, the midst, the midst of why God, I don't really understand what's going on. We can get bitter and run away from God. Or we can come before His throne and say, Lord, I don't understand, but it doesn't matter because I trust You. Lord, I don't fully get it, but You're a faithful God. Does your love for God depend on how much He blesses you? If it does, you don't really love God. Does it change when you're going through difficulty how you feel about God? We must trust and love God even when our trials are overwhelming when we don't understand. I'm going to do something I, I, don't think, I don't know if I've ever done this in the middle of a message before. Bill, you ready? This is a short clip from a movie we're going to show here next month. How many of you have ever seen Facing the Giants? This is a great movie. But there's this portion of it where this man is going through a difficult time with his wife. She's unable to have children. And when I watch this clip, it just makes me think about how Hannah must have felt at the moment. So why don't we just watch this real quick. Or not. Grant, I'm still clinging to a hope that one day we'll have children. If the Lord never gives us children, will you still love Him? secret of life is letting go the secret of love is letting it show
I will still love you. So, what a picture of, a modern day picture, kind of what Hannah must have been going through. And just that picture of getting to the point where you say, Lord, I love you anyway. Lord, no matter what, I trust you. You're a faithful God. I will still love you. And so Hannah's brought to this place where here's these incredible difficulties in front of her. And imagine how she must have felt. Here's Penina, at least from what we see, seeming to be the one with the bad character, right? And yet she's the one blessed. And the one with godly character seems to be the one not blessed. Have you ever struggled with that before? And you look at it and you think, this just doesn't seem right. But we need to know that God looks at things from an eternal perspective. And that while we may be going through trials and difficulties, God is preparing us for something greater. Remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Amen? And so we don't see it yet. We need to trust God even when it doesn't makes sense. Now look at her husband. He doesn't really do a good job here. Because she's weeping, she's not eating, and then says, and I've done this, then Elkanah, her husband, said to Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? You know, guys should just shut up sometimes. Wouldn't even better off to just come and put his arm around her and say, I love you, babe. Right? But he comes in and goes, why you got to have a son? You got me. Aren't I good enough? I get to sit here and I'm sharing you with that lady over there. You know what I mean? I mean, and sometimes, now again, some commentators said, what great boldness he must have had. He must have treated her so well to have been able to say that. But notice, she doesn't even answer him. You see no response. And you know, when I get no response, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Amen. Oh, that's not good. No response. Walks away. Oh, that's not good. The truth is he needed to be comforting his wife. She's in the midst of overwhelming difficulty. She's living in a divided home. It's not even a place of refuge. Can you imagine? You can't even go home and find refuge in your home because your rival lives there. This is Hannah's life. And she's in the midst of great difficulty around her and godlessness around her. And even the priests are corrupt. What a mess. And this is the life that poor Hannah is living. But you know what? God is doing all of this to prepare her heart for something great. And we're about to see it. So God's divine purpose for difficulty. First we've seen her overwhelming difficulty. And now we're going to see how it brings about a heart of desperation. A desperate heart that God can use. Preparing her to be the mother to the next prophet of Israel. Look what it says in verse 9. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting at the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Here she is, bitter, broken, at the end of herself. But praise God that she goes to the Lord instead of running from Him. In a sense saying, I will still love you, Lord. And Lord, I'm, I am bitter and I am hurting, but Lord, I want to come to you, not run from you. Remember that prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts, amen? And as we pray, we conform our will to His. And Hannah's coming to the very place, and you know what, I think it's even okay to come to God and say, Lord, I just don't even get it right now. I know you're in control, but Lord, I don't get it, and Lord, I have to confess to you, I'm a little bitter right now, and forgive me and help me. That's a good prayer, amen? amen? God wants us to come. Does He already know you're bitter anyway? Like, we, gotta, we can't tell God that. He'll, he already knows. So just come and tell Him, amen? amen? Come and confess openly your heart. And Hannah comes with bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. I mean, this is fervent prayer. This is the definition of fervent prayer as she weeps in anguish. And then she made, verse 11, a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the infliction of your maidservant and remember me 
and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. Hannah comes in humility and in desperation and asks the Lord for a child. But she says, Lord, if you give me a child, I will dedicate his life to you. No razor on his head. This is taking the Nazarite vow. He will touch no dead thing. He will drink no wine or anything made of grapes. And you know what? He will keep, his hair will be long as an outward com- picture of the inward commitment he's made for a lifetime. It's interesting, this is right about the time of Samson, who also had taken the Nazarite vow, and it didn't work out too well because he ignored it, didn't he? He's walking through vineyards on the way to go find himself a Philistine wife. What's up with that? Go find an ungodly wife while I'm walking through a vineyard and touching a dead body to reach in and get some honey out of the, the lion that I killed. I mean, he just breaks every Nazarite vow and it doesn't work out too well. But here she comes. Now, some people said, well, is Hannah trying to manipulate God? Well, God, if you'll give me, then I'll, you know, go to God. And Lord, if you'll give me that promotion at work, then I'll tithe more. Lord, if you give me that promotion at work, you give me that new Cadillac, I'll come set up chairs every other Sunday. You know, like bargaining with God. You know what? That's not what's happening at all. You know what I see here? Is she's sharing her heart with God that she's finally to the point where I believe she's ready to be fully used by Him. You know, God wanted, and God was going to use Samuel. And for God to effectively use Samuel, He needed Samuel's mom to catch the vision for what God had for Samuel. And for her to catch the vision for what God had for Samuel, she had to come to the place where she was willing, from even before he was born, to dedicate his life completely to the service of the Lord. And that didn't happen. That would only happen with her going through years of barrenness, being ridiculed by the other wife, even the disobedience of her husband marrying another woman. All of those things that were happening was all preparation for God getting her heart right where it needed to be so she could be a tool in the hand of her master, completely sold out to whatever God wanted to do if he would just give her the child. This is preparation. Guys, you're in the fire, it's preparation. You're going through difficulties, it's preparation for something greater. May we not miss it. All her difficulty was preparation for this moment. I don't know if you know the story. It's interesting. And again, not bargaining with God. But if you know the story of Pastor Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, the one who started all, and founded the Calvary Chapel movement that God used in a mighty way, his mom was pregnant with him when his sister was laying literally on the verge of death. And his mom prayed, Lord, if you'll give me my daughter back, I will dedicate this baby's life to you and give him to you completely. And you know what? Sure enough, the daughter recovered. And from that, she, Chuck said from the moment he could talk, she was teaching the Bible every day and in the Word every day. And you know what? Do you think it's by chance that God used those circumstances to get his mom's heart to the right place to prepare him to be the man that God was going to use? This is what's happening. Is God in control or what? He's sovereign, and so we need to understand that even in the midst of difficulties and trials, that God is faithful, that God is in control, and God knows what He's doing. So God's divine purpose for difficulty, first of all, we see the overwhelming difficulties of Hannah. Now we see her heart of desperation. Her difficulty brought her to the place where she could be used by God. And now we're going to see God's divine response, and the amazing part about it is it's going to come through a corrupt priest, or at least one who's certainly not where he could be or should be. All right, look at verse 12. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought, he, thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, if the priest doesn't recognize fervent prayer... That means there's probably not a lot of it going on. Someone's praying with fervency and he thinks they're drunk, and that's probably because his boys were drunk most of the time, and they were the other priests. And Eli didn't do anything about it, so when he sees someone praying fervently, he doesn't even recognize it, and this is an indictment on their times and on Eli as a high priest that doesn't recognize fervent prayer. Thinks she's drunk. Because she's crying out to God with great fervency. I've never seen this before. 
Someone crying out to God with a fervent heart. You know what? Someone, there's another time in the Bible, several of them actually, where people mistake people for being drunk when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit fell upon them. They spoke with other tongues. People said, oh, you're drunk. People, Peter said, we're not drunk. It's, it's 9 a.m. We're not drunk. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he went on to speak with great boldness and 3,000 people got saved. Amen? And we sometimes, they were looking, not recognizing the hand of God because they didn't know what it looked like. And sadly, that's really a picture of Eli right at this moment that he doesn't fully grasp it. Verse 15. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. You know, that is, I've, I've got that underlined in my Bible. She poured out her soul before the Lord. Do you remember that she was bitterness of soul back in verse 10? And instead of walking around bitter and uptight and mad at God, she comes before Him and pours out her soul before Him. You know what? If your heart's bitter, that's exactly what you need to do. If your heart's broken, if you're struggling, if you're going through trials, you just need to come and just pour it all out before the Lord and lay it out before Him. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Take the bitterness away. Fill me with your spirit. She poured it out in fervent prayer. What an example for all of us. Praying from her innermost being to an audience of one. Verse 16. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman. For out of the abundance of my complaint and grief, I have spoken until now. Hannah didn't want Eli to get the wrong impression. The word wicked woman, if you've got the old King James, says daughter of Belial, daughter of evil. Don't consider me a daughter of Satan because of what you've seen me doing. I'm just coming before God and pouring out my heart before Him. Again, it's better to come before God and pour it all out openly to Him. Even the struggles and the trials because God already knows your heart and it's best to bring it to Him. And that's exactly what she's doing. Hannah had poured out her anguish before God. Verse 17. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. Now, this can be looked at one of two ways. Either Eli was saying that God would grant her request in a prophetic way, or some people believe he's just saying, Well, hey, you know, I'll pray for you. The God will grant your request. Now go. Now, the point is that even though Eli thought she was drunk to begin with, and Eli's not really grasping at this point, when he says this to her, she, by faith, believes that God's going to answer her prayer. And we know that by how she responds. She hears this word coming what, what she believes from God. Because the, the priest... And you know what's interesting to me? Doesn't that happen all the time in the world today? You find out that somebody that God's been using in a mighty way has been living a double life. I know you might mean you know the story of Ted Haggard leading, and people are getting saved, and you think, how is that even possible when he's got this secret life behind him? You know, God, in the middle of all of that, their sin's going to come out at some point, but I'm amazed that God will still use a person. And even Eli, who's not grasping it right now, speaks to her, and I believe that God is at least communicating to Hannah, I'm going to take care of it. You know what? I've heard your prayer. I've heard what you've said, and you know what? I'm going to grant your prayer. And the reason I believe she believes that is look at how she responds. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So she went away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. She stopped mourning because she believed God had communicated to her that he heard her prayer. God heard my prayer. I'm not going to grieve anymore. I'm going to go back and get my double portion, and I'm going to eat it. I'm going to wipe the tears from my face. I'm going to wipe the sadness from my face because God has heard my prayer. You know what's great for you and I today? We have the promise that God always hears our prayer. Every single time. Amen? And you know what? He, he longs for you to come. I, I'm blown away. Can you, we get to, the veil's been torn, you guys. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom because God tore it, right? He reached down and ripped that thing open. And now we can enter the Holy of Holies anywhere and any time. We don't have to go to that one specific place at one specific time that was all pointing to the cross. We go through the cross and now we've been born again and we can pray driving in our car down the freeway. 
We can pray, and aren't you glad we can have intimate fellowship with Him anywhere and anytime, and He always hears you? And Jesus ever lives to intercede on your behalf with the Father? That's what He lives to do. He loves to intercede with the Father on your behalf. He loves that. What a great God we serve. And He just right there, just ask me. I'm right here, ask me. Isn't it amazing how we ask God last sometimes? We exhaust every potential opportunity, and then, well, I guess I could pray. Pray first, amen? Instead of praying last, let's pray first. Let's seek first the kingdom of God. Let's go after him first. And then let's end up with Hannah's faithful dedication of her son. She doesn't just say, okay, Lord, I'll dedicate him to you. And then he gives her, oh, not really. Never mind. Didn't really mean it. Tricked you, got my son, you know. And, and sometimes people do that with God. They make promises to God. You've heard that illustration. The guy's boat sinks. He's 20 miles, 30 miles out. And he says, Lord, if you'll get me to shore, then Lord, I, you know what? I'll go to church. I, I'll quit my job. I'll be a full-time missionary. I'll sell all my possessions, and I'll be in full-time service to you. And then he gets, you know, he's 20 miles out, and he's 10 miles out. Well, Lord, I'll sell all my position, possessions but, and, and give it to a missionary, but I'm going to keep working. And then he gets five miles out. Well, Lord, I'll sell some of my stuff two miles out. I'll go to church more often. You know, and he starts walking up on the sand. Not really, you know what I mean? And what happens is it's like this crisis Christianity that we offer so much to God in the midst of difficulty, hoping we can manipulate him into giving him what we want. But God knows your heart even when you're doing it. Amen? But Hannah, that's not her heart, and we're going to see it in the actions that she takes. Look what happens, beginning in verse 19. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. This is great. The next day, she starts with worship. Has God answered her prayer yet? Does she have a baby yet? Is she pregnant yet? No. But yet she trusts God. She believes God has heard her prayer. And she goes to worship. Man, I love this. Because we see the heart of one who is no longer bitter, has come before the Lord, has left her trials at His feet, and now is worshiping God. She could genuinely worship the Lord in faith while the promise was yet to be fulfilled. The word worship there means to lie prostrate on the ground. So they were lying face down on the ground, worshiping God with their whole hearts. And it says, And returned and came to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. doesn't mean that he had forgotten her before. It means now he opened her womb, but where before he had shut it. He heard her prayer, and now he responds. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at the context of verse 20, because it didn't happen right away. Look at verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son. There was some time between when the promise came and when the fulfillment came. And we need to remember that, that we pray in our time and God answers in His time, and His time's perfect. Amen? Too often we think, well, what's God doing? He's waiting for the perfect time. And we need to learn to trust Him. And so, He remembered her. She conceived and bore a son and called His name Samuel. You know what Samuel means? It means asked of God or heard of God. In either case, God heard me, or I asked God for Him, and He blessed me. So even His name is a reference to the commitment she's made to the Lord that this child is His. But isn't that true of every child? Aren't they all His? When we do a baby dedication, what are we doing? We're saying, Lord, you gave us your child to take care of, and Lord, we're dedicating this child back to you. So it's your child, and we're just going to take care of your child as long as you allow us to. And we dedicate this child's life to you and for your glory. And that's what Hannah is going to do as well. Even his name, a tribute to God's promise. Hannah, fasting and prayer had produced incredible fruit. Look at verse 21. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vows. Another year has gone by. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Hannah did not go back to make sacrifice until she could bring her sacrifice, which was her son. Now there were no nurseries in the tabernacle. So she was going to keep her son until he was weaned. That means very young. Three years old, something like that. Very young. And she, can you imagine? She's going to take her three-year-old son 
at the time of sacrifice and walk him up and give him over to Eli, the guy who called her a drunk. Okay, Eli, here you go. Now, she knew that God was the one watching over that child, right? And that's why she trusted the Lord. And God's going to use Samuel in Eli's life, at least for a little while, before Eli falls over and dies, not too far away. But now it says here, verse 23, But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, I will take him, and he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with the three bulls, one ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Notice they brought all their sacrifices. The bulls, you know, the, 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 the ephahs of flour, and their son. You know what, I, what it's incredible too, though? You don't even think about Elkanah, but this is Elkanah's son too, right? And that means that Hannah's fervency for God had impacted him because he was willing to let their son be delivered to serve in the tabernacle. Again, the faithfulness of Hannah impacted her husband. Verse 25, almost done. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood before you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition when I asked of him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. Hannah follows through on her promise. She didn't just make a grand promise to God, hoping to get something from him. She was not trying to manipulate God. You know what? God had got her to the point where she realized it would be an incredible privilege to wean a son for God and put him into full-time ministry to serve the Lord. And God had brought her heart to the place where she could be the mother to the next great prophet of Israel. You know, it's interesting. They say that one of the biggest roadblocks to young missionaries is Christian parents. They want, their, they want other people to be missionaries, just not my kids. You know, other kids go around the world. And that's great. And, you know, we'll have a bake sale for you. We'll help you. That'd be great. My, my son go, not so much. He needs to stay here and live next door to me. You know what I mean? And you know what? It, the same can, be hap- can happen for all believers. We can get selfish starting to act like our kids are our kids when they're his kids. Amen. And here's Samuel. Is, he's the, you know, God's child ultimately. And he had done all this in Hannah's life to prepare her to be willing to let him go and to serve in the tabernacle. And she was blessed to be able to do it. Can you imagine the level of sacrifice as she gave to the Lord this baby she had prayed for so fervently? But what an incredible blessing he would be to all of God's people. As we continue on, we're going to see this mighty man that Samuel becomes. But notice the last act. I really love the last words of verse one, of verse chapter 1. So they worship the Lord there. Can't you just see them all gathered together around the tabernacle? Their son, three or four years old. And they're worshiping God as they prepare to deliver him over to serve in the tabernacle. And we're going to see that God starts using this young man at a very young age. A time when nobody else is hearing from God, guess who's going to hear from God? Samuel. He's going to speak to Samuel. Eli won't even hear it. But Samuel will. And God's going to use him in a mighty and a powerful way. So in closing... God's divine purpose for difficulty. We saw the overwhelming difficulty of Hannah, a barren womb, a divided home, a rival living in her house, being mocked in her own home. But we saw how God used that to bring about a heart of desperation. She went to a time of devout prayer before God, and the difficulty brought her to a place where she could be used by God. Then we see God's divine response as He hears her prayer and He responds to her prayer. And then finally, her faithful dedication as she follows through on her promise. She names Him, asked of God, and she dedicates His life to serve in the tabernacle. Maybe you're here tonight and you're going through a real difficult time and you don't know why. Can I encourage you? God knows. And whatever you're going through, God will use it for His glory if you will let Him. And maybe God is allowing you to go through the fire so you might come to the place of desperation where you will fall before Him and say, Lord, you can have it all. 
Because you're the most important thing in the world. We won't realize that He's all we need sometimes until He's all that we have. And so, Lord, take away whatever's getting in my way of you, getting in the way of my intimate fellowship, getting in the way of me being used in the most mighty way for your kingdom. Lord, if there's a roadblock I've put in the way, just get it out of here. And Lord, if you have to take my health to do it, then do it. Lord, if you have to take my job, take my finances, whatever it is, Lord, to bring me to the place where you can use me in the most mighty way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this example in Scripture. Lord, the difficulties, Lord, you allow to come into our lives by divine appointment. Lord, that you might conform us more into your image. Lord, I pray when we're in difficulty, we would not run from you, but we would run to you. Lord, we trust you. You're a faithful God. You're in control of all things. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing comes into our life unless it passes through your hand first. And so, Lord, when it comes, may we say yes, Lord. May we keep our eyes on you. And Father, I just thank you and praise you for your incredible love and grace. I thank you, Lord, that you see our hearts, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. You're such a great God. Help us, Lord, to serve you with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.